was thinking, man, we have to find a way to make a smoother transition between all those. We go from like crying with Robin to, ah, veggie tales. All right. Here we go. Well, this morning we continue our series of messages that we've captured with the title Courageous Faith. Throughout the summer, we're studying the lives and the faith of Old Testament characters, discovering from them what courageous faith is. We've looked so far at Noah, Abraham, Joseph, uh, Moses, Joshua, and uh, just a little bit of Caleb on the side last week. But this week, we're going to look at Gideon. Not the tuba warrior, as it was depicted for us in the uh, video that we just saw, um, but also certainly not the mighty warrior that we might expect. In fact, Gideon himself said that he was the weakest and the least. Now, we find Gideon's biography in the book of Judges. And I invite you to turn there with me to the book of Judges, and specifically to chapter 6, where we are introduced to Gideon's life and legacy. Now, Judges comes right after the book of Joshua, the seventh book now of the Old Testament. Last week, we discovered that it was Joshua who led the Israelites into the Promised Land, and in order to do so, they had to cross the Jordan River. This happened 40 years or after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience and unbelief. Maybe just a quick review of some of the history here so we see this progression here uh, through the generations. First there was Abraham. God promised to bless him, make him a great nation, and to give him land. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And then it was Jacob who had 12 sons, one of which was Joseph. It was Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up in Egypt, suddenly and ultimately second in charge, or, or in, really in charge of, of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Um, then God raises up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Moses does that, but they stop just short of entering into the promised land of Canaan. Again, because he had sent out the spies. You may remember I touched on this last week if you were here, and then the spies came back and said, no, we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that said, yes, we can do it, but kind of majority ruled and um, ultimately they were left to wander in the wilderness for another 40 years. But then, as we saw last week, um, that while the root of, uh, was really their faith, it was their faith that enabled their courage, it enabled their commitment, it enabled their obedience, and that allowed them then to enter into the promised land. And God gave it to them, they conquered most of the land of Canaan, but not all of it. There was a little bit of uh, work, work left to do. And in the last chapter of the book of Joshua, chapter 24, Joshua gathers all of the people and he reviews with them much of the history that I just went through. And he says it from God's perspective. It's a great read. I encourage you to read through it this afternoon if you have some time. But I want to read with you, uh, just share with you a few verses beginning in verse 14 of chapter 24 of Joshua. So Joshua is sort of speaking uh, from God's perspective. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors, who, who your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? 
But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. The people then replied, We would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. Never. For the Lord our God is the one who rescued us and our ancestors from slavery in the land of Egypt. He performed mighty miracles before our very eyes. As we traveled through the wilderness among our enemies, he preserved us. It was the Lord who drove out the Amorites and other nations living here in the land. So we too will serve the Lord for he alone is our God. Great declaration of their commitment, isn't it? It's fantastic. Everyone is committed and dedicated to serving God, and they all lived happily ever after in the land. <laughs> Not quite, right? You turn the page into the book of Judges now, chapter 2 and verse 8. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And then verse 10. Listen to this. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and they served the images of Baal. And so it begins. Within one generation, we will serve the Lord for he alone is our God becomes the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and worshipped other gods. And as you read through the book of Judges, and if you choose to do that, let me just warn you, it can be a bit of a depressing read, because you'll see this cycle repeat itself throughout the book. There's rebellion, where the Israelites do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and then there's retribution, where God allows the nation to be conquered and oppressed by a neighboring nation. And then there's repentance. The people turn and they cry out to God. And then there's rescue. God sends a judge to deliver them. And you see this cycle through repeatedly. Rebellion and retribution and repentance and rescue. And so with that as the background, let's take a look at the life of Gideon. And I've tried to collect some thoughts today under three headings. First, God's presence, then God's patience, and then God's power. So first, God's presence. Judges chapter 6 now, and verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. And so right away, you see there's the rebellion, they did evil, and then there's the retribution, Lord handed them over to the Midianites. So we're not off to a great start here, are we? For seven years, the nation of Israel found themselves in serious trouble. The Midianites oppressed them to the point that the Israelites had to hide in mountain caves. And then when they were able to plant crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples came and invaded the country, and they totally ravaged and ruined all their crops, and they took all of their sheep and all the cattle and all of the donkeys. In other words, they had absolutely no food. And let's remember, this is part of world history. These are real people we're talking about. This, these were real places. These were real circumstances. And you could almost hear the conversations taking place within their shelters. Daddy, uh, will we ever be able to go back and live in our home? I miss my friends. Or mommy, uh, when we had to leave so quickly, did you grab that favorite blankie of mine? Mommy, daddy, I'm so hungry. 
You see, the result of these oppressive forces invading the country year after year for seven years was, as we learn from verse 6, that the Israelites were, quote, so impoverished that they cried out to the Lord for help. Right? So they repent. Now, we have a hard time understanding this, but there is somewhat of a cause and effect relationship here. Because it's pretty clear from the scripture that the terrible situation that they found themselves in was directly related to their disobedience. Verse 1 stated it so clearly. The Israelites did evil, so the Lord handed them over. In other words, he removed his protection and blessing because he had earlier made a covenant with them and said, listen, obey me, keep my commands, and I'm going to bless you. But they didn't do that. Instead, they did evil. And so God said, okay, well, I'm just going to allow the Midianites to have their way with you. And when the, Israel, when the Israelites cried out, God answers them. Not, I suspect, in the way that they expected him to help them immediately. He sends a prophet. Isn't that great? I mean, they want a mighty warrior. And they get a preacher. Not that we're all that bad, but, but really, God uses this prophet to remind them of what he had already said to them. Verse 8 and following, I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. In other words, I did this, I did that, and then in verse 10, but you have not listened to me. But you didn't listen to me. And so in verse 11, we meet Gideon for the first time. And when we are introduced to him, we find him threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. You see, usually the threshing of wheat, it was done out in the open on some flat ground so that the wind could aid in separating the kernels of wheat into its various parts. And the wind would come and kind of blow away the chaff. And so here, Gideon, though, he is in hiding. And he's using this wine press then to thresh the wheat. And verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Or if you're reading from the New International Version, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Or another translation says, a man of valor. Really? Mighty warrior? He's hiding in a wine press. I can almost imagine Gideon simply ignoring it. Sure, he had heard it, but he didn't see himself as the mighty hero. I mean, he, he must have thought the angel was talking to and about someone else. But once he clues in that this is a conversation that is up. Gideon asks two very good questions. He says, first of all, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And secondly, where are all the miracles our answers told us about? They're two honest questions. You have to like them. If God is with us, then why all this? And if God is with us, where are all the miracles? Have you ever asked questions like that in our own lives? They're hard questions. They're honest questions. But God can handle it. We can ask those questions. Because just because you might be a follower of Christ doesn't mean suddenly that, that everything is going to go great in life. We face troubles. Robin was honest with his struggles this morning. Follower of Christ got burnt out. It happens. It happens. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be embarrassed. We should be honest. But we should know this. 
that even there, though, God is still with us. And he is there. And so the Lord answers Gideon, you know what, just go. I am sending you. And I love his, Gideon's answer then in verse 15. But Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. Did you catch that? Simply put, I'm the weakest, I'm the least. Me rescue the Israelites from the Midianites? <laughs> That's a good one. Funny. You're good. I'm the weakest. I'm the least. And there's no way I can do what you're asking me to do. I'm not strong enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not skilled enough. I am completely and totally inadequate. And friends, that is exactly the key. Because if we ever, never ever admit our need or our inadequacy we will never then see that God is totally adequate. And that's true for each one of us personally. I mean, if we don't think we need anything, we don't pray. And that's true for us as a church. For example, if we don't believe that God is sending us out and leading us into planting another church, then, and maybe we think that, you know, it's just a good idea and strategies that are going to lead us into the community south of the hand because, you know, like, wow, look at us. We are TCC, and we're here to rescue and save the people of Ambleside and Windermere. You lucky people there. What did you ever do before us? Or let's just back it up a little even. If we just look around here, even on this long weekend in August, and think, wow, look at what we did. There were just 11 of us, and then there were more, and then there were some more, and then we built this building, and then more came, and then even more, and look at our brunch, and look at what we do for a community. I mean, where would they be without us? Friends, it's often incredibly subtle, but let's not ever take credit for what God has done, is doing, and will do. It's only God. That has to be constantly on our minds and in our hearts and on our lips. Because if it isn't, if we don't think and know only God, and then we can become prideful and arrogant, and it just gets ugly from there. I remember having a conversation during brunch with someone who's relatively new to our church, and he was saying, you know, I'm so impressed with how strategic you have been. And he was referring to the brunch and even the rental use of our building and how that supports much of our ministry and finances and paying down the debt of our building, all those things. But can I tell you something? Almost everything that is kind of significant or major at TCC has come about by accident. The brunch, really, when you think about it, it was thought up as a way to simply clear the sanctuary at Holy Trinity because their congregation was waiting to get in for their service. And, and um, you know, somebody thought, well, it's a great time to connect and really... Well, that we kind of figured out later. That was kind of the thing we stumbled upon. Now we do it because it has a great purpose. And while we wanted this building to be used 24-7 and we had no idea in design and construction how that would happen we started anyways. And we had no idea at the time that the Catholic school over here would get so crowded that they would have to move out the YMCA before and after school care. Only God. 
And if you think back, we do this often when we're in staff or at elders' meetings, and we see and retrace God's hand and stuff. That is a total timing thing. Because if we were maybe six months later, that may never have happened. And we would have been in a, in a situation and be like, wow, we've got a big mortgage, and how are we going to pay for that? But God provided. Only God on his tithe. And the Lord says to Gideon, you know what? Yes, you are the weakest and the least, but I will be with you. I will be with you. God's abiding presence. Promise to Gideon. Promise to us. Notice, notice that the Lord doesn't say, oh, come on now, Gideon, don't talk like that. Of course you can do it. Right? Isn't that what we would want to do? Someone says, I can't, and we want to say to them, oh, yes, you can, and we want to encourage them, and we want to pump them up a little bit. Or we might even say of ourselves, oh, I can't do that. I'm just a nobody. Hoping, of course, that, we're, you know, that there's sort of a false pride there, and the people around us say, oh, come on now, enough of that. You can totally do it. You've got the skills, the ability. You are great at what you do. You can do it. Instead, we should say, no, you know what? You're absolutely right. You can't do it. You are the weakest and you are the least. But God can. And he will be with you. I love that answer in verse 16. I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites. But how would you fill in that blank? I will be with you and you will... I mean, what is God calling you to do that is so out there, so beyond you, that if you try it without knowing that he is with you, that you would fail? But he is with you. He is with you. So what is he calling you to do? Listen for him. Hear him clearly, and then follow him in obedience. Because he promises his presence to be with us. But let's look at God's patience. This is verse 17 now to the end of chapter 6. Gideon still doesn't quite have the courageous faith that we think maybe he should have at this point, so he asks God to show him a sign to prove that it is God talking to him. And Gideon hurries home, and he prepares an offering. He cooks up a young goat with a whole basket of flour, Excuse me, he bakes some bread, and he brings them back to the angel of the Lord, who is just quietly hanging out under the tree. I mean, maybe I've been a little hard on Gideon. I think that while there's some unbelief and he's looking for a sign here, I also have to see that there's enough faith for him to bring his offering. And bringing an offering takes faith, right? But look at their situation. Remember, these were impoverished people. They were living in total poverty. The Midianites would come and they would raid all that they had. And so then here he takes a young goat, which he probably didn't have many of, if any, and a basket full of flour to bake bread. <clears throat> and he comes back and the angel of the Lord tells him to put the offering on a rock. And he does. And if you're still following along in your Bibles, in verse 21, we see what happened. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of the staff in his hand, and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought. <laughs> just, I would just, I'd love, I love these stories, and I love trying to picture the response of the person there. Like, how Gideon's eyes must have just, like, 
been huge as he watched this fire totally consume this offering that he brought. But just as quickly as that happens, the angel of the Lord disappears, and Gideon actually freaks out a little. Because it was then that he realized that it was actually the Lord himself. And then he feared for his life. Because it was understood that if you see God face to face, then you're going to die. But God comes again and tells him, listen, don't be afraid. You will not die. And so Gideon builds an altar there and he names it, the Lord is peace. And as the account of Gideon goes on, we see how his faith and his commitment to the Lord continues to grow. God told Gideon to take a bull, this is a great part of this story, from the father's herd. And and it gets really interesting now. Because then we suddenly learn, right in the middle of, of, uh, of, um, of towards the end now of chapter 6, we learn that in fact it was Gideon's dad, his name was Joash, that he had set up an altar to Baal. And beside it was an Asherah pole. This was to honor a pagan goddess, and it was a place of worship. Gideon's father leading the rebellion. God says, no other gods. And Joash builds an altar to Baal. And God then tells Gideon to go and tear down this altar, his father's altar to Baal. And he's going to then instead replace it with an altar to the Lord. And he instructs him to use the wood, ironically, from the Asherah pole that he was going to cut down. He's going to use that wood for the fuel for the sacrifice of his father's bull. And Gideon takes ten servants with him to do this. But he does it at night. He's still a little chicken, still a little afraid, right? Not quite the mighty man of valor just yet. And the next morning, it's a great read, the people of town discovered what had been done to the altar of Baal. And they start to ask around and they investigate to find out who did it. They very quickly learn that it was Gideon. I mean, he never should have taken 10 people with him, those 10 servants. One of them obviously ratted him out. And so they go to his dad. They show up on dad's doorstep. Hey, Do you know where your son Gideon was last night? Do you know what he was up to? Now bring him out. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. Now it's interesting to me that despite the fact that this altar to Baal was actually Joash's, when his son's life was on the line, he defended him. And what he says is absolutely great. He says, If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. In other words, if if Baal is a god, if, why does he need you to defend him? He should be able to take care of himself. Good point, don't you think? And so we see Gideon. He understands that God is with him. He's growing in his faith. And God is being kind and gracious and patient with him. And yet kind of seems to be testing God's patience a little bit. Beginning at verse 36, Gideon asks, now for another sign. He says, if you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. Now, if you grew up in the church, you're probably very familiar with this fleece test. For some of you, this may be new. So what happened? 
When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowlful of water. So yes, God gave a sign, Gideon, he will help you rescue Israel. This is, I love this part. And Gideon's like, um, excuse me. (laughs) Pardon me, that's great, that's great. Wet fleece, dry ground, it's all good. But please, please, please don't be angry with me. Can we try for one more sign? I mean, if, if, if there's dew on the ground around the fleece, it's going to absorb it. So how about dry fleece, wet ground? Because that's going to be harder to do. Now, I wonder, I wonder if God ever rolls his eyes. Did you ever wonder that? It's kind of passive-aggressive, so I don't think so. But if he did, I think right about now he's rolling his eyes at Gideon. Seriously? And even Gideon is a little worried that he's testing God's patience when he says, um, don't be angry with me. Don't be angry with me. And so that night, God did as Gideon asked. The fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with dew. God did as Gideon asked with the fleece twice. Why? Because that's just the kind of God he is. Gideon is totally helpless on his own. God doesn't need Gideon. But like the Apostle Paul, when he tried to come to grips with his own weakness, Gideon learned, my power is made perfect in weakness. And don't we see this in the Incarnation? God sees humanity totally helpless, waiting for a conquering king, and he sends a baby, his son, to become the Lamb of God who will rescue humanity. What a God who time and time and time again shows his patience, his kindness, his gentleness, his mercy, and his grace. So God's presence, Gideon, I will be with you. God's patience, sure, I will show you a sign and another and another. And lastly, God's power, Judges 6, verse 16, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites. And then in Judges 6, 34, there's this verse, then the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. And so if we move quickly into chapter 7, we see how this unfolds. We learn about the enemy that Gideon faced from verse 12. If you glance there, this is chapter 7 now in verse 12. The armies of Midian, Amalek, the people of the east had settled in the valley, catch this, like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Any of the battle scenes from Lord of the Rings or any of those kind of movies have nothing on this scene. And it must have been a scary sight. It must have felt totally overwhelming. I mean, Gideon had a pretty significant army himself. We learned very quickly that he had 32,000 warriors who answered the call to arms. 32,000. But God says to Gideon, you ready for this? You have too many warriors. You have too many. What? But we see why God is concerned about the too many warriors. Because God wants to make absolutely sure that when the victory comes, there's absolutely no doubt as to why it came. 
When the victory comes, no one can say, oh, man, we had this amazing strategy. Man, that was an excellent idea that you had. Oh, what an amazing job. You are the strongest and the mightiest warrior ever. And this is clear from verse 2 because God himself says, if I let all of you, referring to the 32,000, fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. So Gideon, here's what we're going to do. Let's just tell whoever is afraid to go home. If you're afraid, you can go home. Everyone's nervously looking around. Is anyone going to admit that they're scared? You can sort of picture it. Finally, there's a little bit of movement. A few start to move away. And suddenly a mass exodus. 22,000 of the 32,000 soldiers left. Honestly, they're probably better off without them anyways because you're scared that many? But there's 10,000 left. Gideon must have been a little bit worried. I mean, he had seen what the armies looked like. Swarm of locusts, so many camels. Maybe there's a soldier or two to each camel. Who knows? Uh, Gideon, yes, Lord? There's still too many warriors. <laughs> what do you mean there's still too many? Okay, Gideon, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the 10,000 that are left, and we're going to lead them down to the spring so that they can drink some water. And we're going to watch how they drink. Got it? Some are going to cup the water in their hands. They reach down, they're going to cup it in their hands, they're going to lap it up like a dog. Those are the guys we're going to keep. But the ones who kneel down on their hands and they stick their lips right to the water and kind of slurp the water in, those guys, we're going to go around, we're going to tap them on the shoulder and say they can go home now. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. I mean, people like to theorize about this and they come up with all sorts of ridiculous conclusions about like why lapping out of hands is a sign of a better soldier. <laughs> or they might say that, you know, what God is doing here is he's kind of whittling it down and getting like an elite task force, you know, the Navy SEALs of, uh, of the Marines, the best and the brightest, the brave and the strong. It's completely out of context because what we see that God is simply getting Gideon's army down to a number that was so small, so inadequate, so incapable that when the victory came, everyone would know without a certainty, God did this. There's another quick example here of God's grace to Gideon. He wakes him up and he says, okay, it's time, go. I like this. But if you are afraid, but if you're afraid, He knows he is. There's 300 of them now. They started with 32,000. And he sends Gideon and his servant on a reconnaissance mission. And get this, they overhear two men talking about a dream that one of them had. Verse 13, I had this dream. And in my dream, a loaf of barley bread, can you picture it, came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. And so let me ask you, what are the chances of a loaf of bread knocking over a tent. Right. 
about the same as 300 soldiers armed not with swords and spears and arrows, but get this, with trumpets, torches, and clay jars going up against an army that swarmed like locusts and had camels too numerous to count. And when Gideon heard the interpretation to that dream and knew that it meant that God would give him the victory, he bowed down and worshipped the Lord. It's the only right and appropriate response, isn't it? When we see and understand God's power, God's might, God's ability to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine. And so Gideon, he returns and tells them what they're going to do. And there's absolutely no military strategy at all, except maybe if you think that breaking into three groups of 100 is strategy. And he basically says, listen, we're going to blow our horns, and we're going to smash our clay jars, and then we're going to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Do you think you could do that? That was the whole point. He didn't need warriors. He didn't need soldiers. Anyone could do that. Carry a trumpet. You got breath. Blow it hard. Got a torch in this hand and a clay jar. And when you get this signal, we're going to smash those jars. We're going to make this ruckus. They're going to think they're under attack. And look at what happens. Verse 22. The Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. And so in the cover of darkness, in the dark of night, they turn on themselves, and then others just simply in the chaos absolutely run away. It's crazy, isn't it? Seems rather unlikely, but it happened. And God has the power to do it. And he seems to specialize in using these unlikely methods. Like the hymn writer says, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. And remember, this is a God who became flesh in the person of Jesus and lived among us. Do you ever think that that's a pretty strange way to save the world too? And then what about the power of the cross as the hymn goes? This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. So just some final thoughts about this, God's presence. You see, the thing that we need to be most concerned about is ever thinking that we can do it on our own. Anything. Okay? The very breath that we have today is an example and a gift of the grace of God. God's patience is truly amazing grace, as we sang about this morning, giving us what we don't deserve. Forgiveness, salvation, extending to us his mercy. In other words, not giving us what we do deserve. And God's power. We depend on him completely, and we worship him. So as we move forward in life and as TCC, we can move forward with this confident assurance that A, he is with us, that B, even when we make missteps along the way, he's patient and gracious, gracious with us. And lastly, because of his power, 
He is able. Let's trust him and put our faith and confidence in him.